Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1988 film, Eight Men Out. So, you know, baseball is starting up right now, opening week, and I thought, well, you know, have a little fun here, let's do a baseball movie. And Eight Men Out is the story, for those of you who don't know, of the 1919 Black Sox scandal. And these were eight players on the Chicago White Sox who were, in 1919, they made it to the World Series. And although they were heavily favored to win that World Series, eight players took um, decided to throw the World Series, intentionally lose, make bad plays, so on, in order to get money from gamblers. They were paid off. And eventually the scandal was uncovered. There was a trial, and although the they were they did not face any criminal charges, they were found not guilty on the trial. The judge, uh, the the new the recently appointed commissioner of Major League Baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, said, regardless of their verdict, if they consorted with gamblers, if they discussed throwing a game, or if they knew people who were going to throw a game and did nothing about it, they should, they will never play baseball again. And all eight of those players never played in the majors after that trial. And so this film is just basically the retelling. It starts right about right at the end of the regular season in 1919. They get around, they discuss the World Series, and it gets to the World Series. We say we see the players making questionable plays, mm-hmm. and then after the end of the World Series, we see the the uncovering of the scandal through the media and the press, and then it gets to trial. And so yeah, and. Uh, I've seen this movie quite many times. It's probably my favorite baseball movie, even though it's you know funny just because one year later you had Field of Dreams, which is a much more optimistic yeah. and friendly baseball movie, even though it features the eight baseball players or the, some of the ghosts that play in that cornfield yeah. in that movie. Yeah. So it's, it's similarities, but one's more optimistic and more nostalgic about the of what baseball is this is more kind of cynical about the business of baseball and what caused these guys to do what they did yeah and uh it's kind of interesting you mentioned that because i I know certainly the feel of field of dreams is is hopeful optimistic uh uh kind of the positive side of americana and then this one it shows the seamy underside of uh the early days of professional baseball um, but there's a contrast within the film itself, I think, in in in, in that dichotomy. In that, uh, while it's telling this terrible story of of uh, you know these guys throwing this game, um, at the same time there there is kind of a I guess primarily because of the music, <laughs> there is this kind of nostalgic bounciness to it. Yeah, and even yeah. not even just with the music, but we see these kids, who yeah. are these Chicago youth. They, you know, idolize one idolizes Buck Weaver, the other one idolizes Shoeless Joe, mm-hmm. and they talk to Buck Weaver a lot. And they say, you know, he, one of these kids is named Buck. We named a Buck because you're his favorite player, and I'm named Shoeless Joe because Joe's my favorite player. So you see their optimism and. Even they even address Buck after the trial, and he sort of lies to them because he says, you know, when you grow up, things change. Like, well, did you do this? He's like, well, I never grew up. So insinuating that he didn't do it. Yeah. And that's, it's an interesting character of Buck Weaver. You can see he, he you don't really see him. And there's no scene of him saying, I'll do this. I'll take the money. But it's yeah. insinuated that he agreed to do it. But as you, But when you see him make plays and everything... He's yeah. very into it. He's playing hard on offense and defense, so he's not like 
letting balls slip by or yeah. you know not hitting. So the, the way the read I got on Buck was that he did never agree to do it, and I don't know what the history actual history is with him. And I know he tried to clear his name for the rest of his life and failed. Um, but um, the, my read was that uh, he probably didn't choose to go along with it. Um, and there was a kind of unspoken agreement that he would not say anything about it, though, and that he that he, the the price of that, so to speak, from the other guys that were in on the fix, was that uh, you know you're not going to say anything because I'm going to play my usual hardest. Um, it's interesting. It's kind of a little bit ambiguous with him, and he's ambiguous in the in the other way with this theme of the. Uh, Kind of the positive nostalgic aspect of the film and kid like wonder um, versus the cynicism. He's caught in the middle there because there's that one scene when he's talking to that kid and he says, you know, it, I still haven't lost the thrill. And he describes what it, that, that peak experience you get when, uh, you know, you're kind of in, he says it, the ball's in a groove and you feel when the, bat makes contact and you feel it give just the right way there's still nothing like that there's nothing like getting out in front of the people and performing and all that so he's still very has has that kind of childlike wonder at the game at the same time contrasted to some extent with his willingness to acquiesce or be quiet about the conspiracy yeah and i think with modern listeners who follow somewhat baseball today and they're this idea of throwing a game seems so alien to them because why on earth would they do that well in today it's a very baseball back this was 1919 so baseball in those early days was very 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 different than it is today i mean when you hear about the contracts baseball players make i mean i forget there's a pitcher for the yankees he's not running across my mind but they signed him to this deal i mean you go how in the world are they get afford that yes but this was the time before free agency. This yes. was almost 50 years before Kurt Flood challenged the reserve clause, which basically constricted players basically saying, unless we trade you, you're staying for this club for life. Yeah, And that allowed owners to basically do whatever they wanted. It wasn't until Marvin Miller and the players union kind of stepped in the 60s and challenged that. But mm-hmm. at this time, and, no, and even among the owners... Nobody was, they show this in the movie quite a bit, but nobody was as cheap or tight-fisted as Charles Kaminsky, who owned the White Sox. He was notorious. Now, this team was consistently among the best. Just two years earlier before this, in 1917, they won the World Series. Yeah. And he wasn't paying, he was, even sports writers are talking about how he never really paid them their salary. They're... Even though they were one of the best teams in the league, they were. If you look at their wages and how much they were making, they were low on the yes. like as low as like the lower teams at that time. Yeah. And there was even if you because the book is in the movie is based on a book by Elliot Asinoff, and he talked about how they would even he would impose uh, strict meal budget plans. They are for meals when they're on the road. They're only allowed like three dollars per meal, so there, he was very restricted on what they're allowed to eat, and they were. Even people think of Black Sox because of the scandal, and it taints them. They were called the Black Sox because he was too cheap to pay their laundry. So even just stuff like that. And even that scene in the beginning when they've clinched the pennant, they're going to the World Series, and they're in their dugout, and it's the usual pop and champagne and celebration. Yeah. And they say, well, this is nice of him. Did he mention uh, when we're going to get that bonus for winning the pennant? 
And then his uh, Kaminsky's right hand man, he looks at him and says, "This is your bonus." Yes, and not only is it a a, a non cash bonus, it's flat champagne, yeah, it's cheap champagne. <laughs> it's just, and that happened too. That happened, and the other thing that happened that they, I guess, placed in 2019, which was actually 2017, is uh, uh, the pitcher 1917. Uh, 1917. I'm sorry, the pitcher uh, Seacott. Um, there's a scene in the film where he he approaches Mr. Uh, Kaminsky, which we should probably call Kami from now on, but because they do call him that in yeah. the film. But he approaches him, and says, "Look, you owe me a bonus. Um, if you said you said if I got to thirty wins, I would get ten thousand extra dollars." And Kaminsky says, "No, well, you got to twenty nine, and what we find out." Is that he purposefully pulled him at twenty nine, so he wouldn't have to pull it, uh, pay him that for bonus. Five, star- five straight starts. Yes, for no reason, with the excuse that he was saving his arm for the series. Well, uh, that didn't. I, apparently, that happened in twenty seventeen, mm-hmm. which actually gives more motivation to Seacott, I think, because you know you can imagine he he probably stewed over that for two years, and then uh, when these gamblers approached him. Uh, it made it at least more tempting for him to go along yeah. with the scheme. And for those who maybe don't follow baseball as much, a pitcher winning 30 games in a season, is that something that hasn't happened in almost 50 years since that wonderful human being, Denny McLean, did it way back in 1968. So this that's something. So if a pitcher wins 29 games, that's like easily the best pitcher yes. in the league. So even if he doesn't get to 30... You owe him a bonus. Like, if oh, yeah. a pitcher did that now, he'd be the highest-paid pitcher in Major League oh, my Baseball. Goodness, yes. I couldn't yes. imagine the contract that guy would get. Oh, yeah. So it's just so it's so tight-fisted that he is using that excuse that you only got to 29. Yeah. I'm not giving you that bonus because I'd say and, for 30. And what they, what they really don't show too much, it's kind of implied in the film, is the amount of collusion there were there was between owners— uh, Kaminsky was cheap, sure enough, but they all as a set were cheap. He just oh, yes. happened to be the cheapest of the cheap. And they they had a tremendous amount of power over all of the players in that they basically agreed amongst themselves that they would not let them be free agents and move from t- team to team so there would be no bidding wars. So each owner would basically have the set of players he wanted for the longest time he wanted until he would cut somebody. But they would keep the salaries because there is no bidding war going on um, kind of artificially low. And, and you know, like you said, if you look at some of these salaries these guys made, by today's standards, and even by that standard of uh, 1919, that era, uh, not a lot of money being made. And it's it's certainly shown in the... Uh, and this is what I actually like about the film. And actually, I like about the era. And it's, it's something that's kind of missing um, today just because of the inflated salaries athletes make and the pros at any rate, is the fact that these guys were amongst their fans. They lived in the same neighborhoods. As you mentioned, Buck Weaver uh, lives in the neighborhood with these kids, and um, they idolize him, but they also get to talk to him on a day-by-day basis. He sits on the porch and talks to him, and I love that scene where um, one of them says, show me some tricks, Buck, and you know, they pull out a ball, and he, he throws him some balls, and the kid tries to ground them and so forth. Just great. So much of that is lost these days. Yeah, well, not even just with the fans, but also you see somewhat uh, intimacy with the sports writers because the two main characters outside of the players we see are um, Hugh Fullerton and Ring Lardner, who are yeah. both sports writers. 
um, played by Studs Terkel, Hugh Fullerton, and uh, John Sayles, who wrote and directed the movie, is the, played Ring Lardner. And it's so funny if you look at pictures of Ring Lardner, he they look exactly alike. Yes, and that's interesting because because you see like the contrast how Kami treats the players and how he treats the sports writers. The beginning of the movie as they're celebrating the pennant. Kaminsky is taking all those sports riders out, and he's really whining and dining them. They have this great four-course oh, yeah. meal. He's giving them the best champagne. It's not flat. They're getting great champagne. Yes. And that's which is also described in the book. He was notably extremely generous in, you know, whining and dining his sports riders. And a lot. And one of the things why, um, after the scandal broke out, a lot of the sports riders and newspaper writers were on Kaminsky's side. And you read the newspaper reports once this broke out. It was always about poor him. How could they do yeah, this to yeah. Kaminsky, this longtime baseball man? Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, and and what's particularly galling about that scene where he is he is certainly whining and dining these uh, sports writers is not only the fact that he's buying their favor. I mean, he comes across as a classical politician, by the way, when he mm-hmm. does that whining and dining the press. Um, but at any rate, um, not only is he doing that, but he's singing the praises of every one of his players as if he had a deep concern not only for their success as baseball players, but their uh, well-being as you know uh, human beings, and there's a close friendship. And, and as you see his interactions with the actual players uh, throughout the film, uh, he's very put off, as disdainful of them, does not want to talk to them, and is actually quite capable of being cold and compassionless, especially with the seacot. That that scene just that, that grates. Yeah, and even in in the contrast with how how the because the because mainly Ring Lardner and Fullerton are the ones that are just kind of, they see through Kaminsky when yeah. he's praising him. Lardner goes to Fullerton and says, "If he's such a fan, why doesn't he pay them a living wage?" Yes, and then you even see they have this close connection with the players because they go on the road with them. They're on the same train ride. They're practically within the same compartments. When they're on the in a hotel, they're almost on the same floor. Yes, and I think. If you see somebody who was really betrayed by this overall, it would have to be, I think, Ring Lardner, because he has this close friendship with Seacott. Yeah, and he, after his after the first game when Seacott was just awful and just lobbing in there and getting torched by the other team, he pulls him aside and says, "I want to know if this is on the level." And he says, "Well, if I told you it what if it was, you would believe me." He says, "Yes," but as you see. He's when he kind of after he sees Seacott having another bad game, he says, "You lied to me, Eddie." Yeah, and even there's a there's a little scene you don't know. It, 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 I didn't. I just picked this up after I've seen it like almost twenty times. But as the White Sox first enter the courtroom, Lardner's there looking at him. He look they him and Seacott's eyes meet for a little bit, and and Seacott just quickly looks away from him. Yeah, he can't face him. He can't face him anymore. That's that's and, a and that's a good catch. I didn't actually notice that either. I and, love. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. That's and, fine. Uh, if you look at Ring Lardner's life, because he was not only a sports writer, he was this famous writer. And if his name rings a bell, his son was one of the ten uh, Hollywood screenwriters who were blacklisted during the HUAC hearings. But anyway, if you look at Lardner's writing after this, anytime he really just kind of moved away from baseball, he wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. And in his writings, if he had sports figures in his stories, they would always be cynical and cold-hearted he really just lost that love of the game after this yeah he felt so personally betrayed yeah and you see that uh uh, cynicism coming through 
in those two characters, uh, Lardner and Fullerton, um, at, at all stages of this film. They, I saw, I read a great review somewhere on this that they perform a function not unlike a, a Greek chorus in a, in, a, yes. in, a, in tragedies, which it, in Greek tragedies they they actually are observing the events. They're not a part provide of the a plot. running commentary. Yeah, and they just provide commentary, and these guys are providing commentary all the way through this film, um, and really pressing home. I think the horrible kind of catch twenty two or being caught in the middle situation that the players are, are confronted with in this. They have no power. Um, they can't, as you said, they can't negotiate in any kind of way. Uh, on an equal footing with the owners, they they don't have free agency, so they can't leave if they find that their owner is a cheapskate, um, and so they're being used and abused in that kind of anti uh, uh, anti Kantian fashion uh, by the owners. On the one hand, uh, on the other, you know they're given, although it's illegal, it seems like they're given an opportunity here to um, get what they deserve in terms of pay reflective of their talent level um, when the gamblers show up and make this offer. But as you see events unfold, because this is illegal and under the table and secret, the gamblers know full well they can take advantage of those players after making promises to them that they're going to get 10000 up front, 10000 after the series is thrown. They don't get that. I think at the maximum they get five. Yeah, the only person who really was smart about it was Seacott saying, before I throw the first game, I want $10,000 yeah. guaranteed. No, None of the other players agreed to that. They just yeah. thought they would, they would. They just took the gamblers at their word because, well, we should mention the gamblers now. One was a friend of Chick Gandles, who his name was Sport Sullivan, who was a Boston gambler. And the other guys who came on on another side was um, Billy Maharg and Bill Burns. Bill Burns was a former baseball player, and they tried oh. to pitch it to a former boxer named Abe Attell, who was like a second-in-command to this powerful uh, gambler and later gangster named Arnold Rothstein. And it was kind of like, it is kind of a confusing mishmash of who's running who, because one guy says he doesn't do it and he's pretending to be Rothstein, but then Rothstein later decides to take it anyway. So it's just back and forth. It's a little confusing. And like when Um, you see that scene when um, Maharg and Burns go to the... Um, Mattel's room to get the money, and he says, "Oh, it's not all in bets." While his, you know, the, his bed has filled with stacks of cash. Yes, yes, and they just know they're going to be able to do this because of the illegal nature of it. And as uh, one of the players, uh, after all of the events that have occurred, it's Hat Felch is talking about this at a bar, and he, he says, "You know, yeah, we didn't get everything we were promised. But what am I going to do? Go to the police, right?" Yeah. So. They're caught in the middle, like I said. I mean, they're being used in a way uh, to bring in the philosophical theme here that um, um, Immanuel Kant would have said uh, uh, doesn't pass muster. Both the gamblers and the owners are using these players almost purely as uh, mere means to their own ends, not giving sufficient respect to the players as persons in themselves, in, in either not giving them a living wage or making promises to them with no intent of carrying out those promises. And it's an interesting, because of that, you have to ask, well, what is it about the situation that has created this uh, catch-22 situation for these 
players. And uh, so the film is actually a, a, a big commentary, I think, on uh, uh, the state of baseball at that time. Yeah. And, and the fact that there was an, an insufficient balance of powers. And that created this uh, situation and put them in the situation. Yeah. I have to say, if, I think it, if it's a very pro-union film and it's not a because this is directed by john sales and just two a year earlier he directed a film called matawan Mm -hmm. which is about um around the same time 1920 about a famous uh strike and fight of war between a coal miner in west virginia for the for the right to unionize so i think it is just like you know you have to have a player's union because you otherwise owners are going to take advantage of the situation and pay them on a living wage and if you when people are getting upset about that they're going to try to make go through illegal means like Yes. making uh, bets with gamblers. And this wasn't, and like Asinoff talks about his book, it wasn't like this was the only time it ever happened in baseball. There were numerous instances before, all going back to the 19th century, where players were taking dives. And there were, like he even talks about the World Series after there were rumors that the Dodgers and Indians series in 20 was also thrown. Interesting, yeah. And you know, certainly there's certainly one solution to the problem would be a formation of a union. Um Another would be uh, a, a similar sort of legal uh, schema that would allow for a true free market with regard to the players. Um, but in either case, um, you would have at that time you would have had uh, vociferous protests from the owners. They had no interest in doing anything yes. like this. And uh, uh, it, like you said, it, it, it was a very slow process not in pro sports in general, not just baseball. Um, players' unions really didn't get very strong uh, 60s, 70s. I think even there in, were, in, in the NFL, there were strikes in the 80s twice. Yes, right, even with the union. And yeah. I can vividly remember showing you my age um, um, that uh, a key period of time where you first saw the effects of the unions being able to wield sufficient bargaining power uh, with the uh, Dallas Cowboys. Um, they had a reputation because of Tech Schramm of being of underpaying their players. And for the longest time, he would be able to basically coerce players to take those that lower pay. He'd say things like, well, look, look, you're not going to get anywhere near the success uh, and other uh, franchises than you do with us. Uh, sometimes he'd say that, and sometimes he'd just simply refuse to up their pay. Well, uh, 1977, uh, the draft. Tony Dorsett, he actually had a lot of guts. He sat down, he negotiated with the Cowboys, and he basically said, look, I, I'm not going to accept any, any of this. Um, you're going to pay me what I deserve. And eventually Tech backed down hmm. for a $1 million contract. Which, which was big at the time. Big back in that time. Now it is almost minimum wage. That's like third string quarterback. <laughs> yeah. I, and seriously, I think the minimum wage in the NFL is right around 500000 if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And similar things happened in um, uh, Major League Baseball as well. So I think overall what's happened over the course of the years is through the force of uh, players' unions and the introduction of uh, free market economy, essentially free agency, again, 
something that uh, the unions strongly pushed for, right? Uh, you've had an improvement for the players. They are certainly be, being given that uh, proper treatment as ends in themselves that Kant would suggest. Um, now, that's great, but you know, then again, I think uh, to some extent there's 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 a a, a trade off there, uh, some negative consequences of that. Yeah, and I, and yeah, go ahead. I was, was one of the things I felt because of the player unions. I was there's something happened I did not like at all because. Almost 100 years later, you had another World Series where the outcome might be in question, but it wasn't because a team was throwing it. It was because of the Houston Astros scandal, which for those of you who don't know, Houston Astros had, ran this complex sign-stealing system where they would know what pitches the, yep. uh, the were being thrown before they could do it. And they did that for a number of years. They you know, famously were banging trash cans, so like two bangs might be a curveball, so on and so forth. And it helped them. They used it in 2017, the year they won the World Series. And two years later, they went to the World Series again, but they lost. Yeah. The, as far as punishment, A.J. Hinch, the manager at that time, who's now with the Tigers, he was he, had, he, he was fired from the team. He went on and he's now signed with the Tigers. And I forget the other guy, he was like their hitting coach or something. He was went on to the Red Sox. And supposedly with the Red Sox, he, won, he was with them when they won the Series in 18. He also might have done that, but he was fired. I'm not sure if he's still around, but those guys were there. It was known that Al- Jose Altuve and Car- Correa, their two big star players, were running that system, yeah. and they were considered to be even more culpable. They were the leaders of it, even more so than the managers. But because of the players' union, they did not receive a single suspension. There was not even a fine. They yep. got away practically scot-free. Yeah, And that is grading because these knowingly cheated a system which got them the highest thing they could get, a World Series title, and they're getting away with it. Yeah, so yeah. it's like a pro and con thing. Like While they're getting the money they deservedly paid because they're good players, but they're getting away almost with murder, with cheating. Yeah, they're compromising the integrity of the game. Part of, part of the power of this uh, film and the power of talking about these cases of cheating is that it allows you to draw a fundamental distinction between something like Major League Baseball, the NFL, college football, hockey leagues, you name it, uh, sports leagues in general. The outcome of these games ideally is supposed to be quite literally up in the air and based upon the skill level and the coaching of the teams involved in a match. You do not want to find out that it has been rigged because then those sports with their long traditions of competitiveness and excellence become nothing more than something like glorified versions of pro wrestling. You could see that tension in the characters in this film. They felt bad about besmirching the game and you see it in these modern day examples too. It is something that I think, uh, it drives home the wisdom of Landis's hard line on cheating. You can say, yes, those guys were in a terrible position. They were powerless and so forth. But for the long-term integrity of the game, you have to have rules like this, or it will devolve into pro wrestling. Go ahead. I was just saying, one thing I want to talk about before we start wrapping up here is we have to talk about the big controversy about all this is Shoeless Joe's 
lack of inclusion into the Hall of Fame. And you could almost make a case for almost any of these players because if you look at their stats, yeah. they were among the best players of their time. But yeah. Shoeless Joe's the big one because, you know, people, his defenders always bring this up. He hit three. His batting average was at 375, which was the highest of any player in that World Series. He hit the only home run in that World Series. He made no errors. So you're saying, and he, you know, there's even people who question because even the things in Asanov's books, which are more like he knew about it to a certain extent. He may have taken payments, but he might have wavered off at the end. Mm-hmm. But even people say bring that in because they said even before the season the series started, he tried to talk to Kaminsky about this, but Kaminsky refused to talk to him. And even after the series, he tried to tell him about this, and Kaminsky still refused to talk to him. So people say because of that, he should still be in the Hall of Fame, even if he was culpable. It's been over. It's been over a hundred years since this. Shouldn't it be time to let this guy in who clearly deserves it? And I think that also brings up, is there a morality clause to getting into the Hall of Fame? Because then explain somebody like a man like Cap Anson. Cap, if you don't know, Cap Anson was a baseball player in the late 19th century. Statistically, one of the best players of his generation. But he was, even for his time, extremely racist. He was one of the people that started this idea of, we will not allow black players in baseball. Mm-hmm. And there were instances where he were, there was a taking the field against a team that had a black player. He said... He would say horrible racial epithets and said, I'm not playing. So, But he's in the Hall of Fame. So I'm like, if he's in, why can't Shoeless Joe yeah. be in? And I'm thinking probably, probably uh, as distasteful as it is, the, the answer is probably similar to the one they give for Pete Rose not being in. Um, what they did, but I'd say more so in the case of Shoeless Joe, if, if in fact he was in on this, um, it, it, it struck at the core of that issue of the integrity of the game, um, what he did. So that's why he's not in. And to address the morality, the would-be morality clause with uh, um, the, the racism, what's his name? Cap Anson. Uh, to address the morality cause clause issue with uh, Cap Hansen, um, it, again, as... Uh, distasteful as, as it is to say this, the, the, the reason probably is because it did not have a direct impact on the integrity of the game as a competitive enterprise. Now, it certainly has a direct impact on the integrity of the game as a human institution because you are actively or at least he was giving voicing opinions that led to the league actively um, uh, excluding a huge part of our population and a, a very talented pool of our population as we know from the history of the negro leagues so i mean if it, my personal opinion uh with a case like that is um, there can be cases of I don't want to say moral turpitude, but just moral in, indifference or, or callousness or other issues um, that I think for me would be sufficient to not let a guy in. I, just, Even, it but, comes down to me is it's been over a hundred years knowing what we know now and saying if things were more like where they were today, I think Jackson would have been happy with what he was paying if he was paid like 
players are today yeah. that he wouldn't have taken the money and nobody would have taken the money because they got if they had all they had to be was act adequately compensated. Yep. So it's just and Kaminsky is somebody who is in the Hall of Fame too. So yes. it's just like that and even if getting into somebody like Pete Rose, technically Pete Rose did not bet against his team. He always bet for his team. And it's sort of, and if you look at Pete Rose statistics, it's not, he's obviously a Hall of Famer. I mean, the things he did, he was one, he's one of the top 10 players of all time. So it's just, it's just one of those things where I just, you got to put him in. It's, I don't know. It's like even in the NFL, you know, OJ Simpson's in the Hall of Fame, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, And that might be another case where I would disagree with that move. Um, You know, I mean, you can think of hypothetical examples of somebody that, uh, you know, was abused his wife or uh, child abuse or something like that. I, my inclination would not be to allow him in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their other podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Music